Welcome to the One and O podcast hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The One and O podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. Be sure to listen to both our show and the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast hosted by Kevin Dunn and Paul Wadlington. Please rate, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to contact us, email us at everyonegetsatrophy at gmail.com. That's everyone gets a trophy with the number one at gmail.com. And of course, our podcast would not be possible without the following sponsors. Audio visual consultations. Give them a call. 512-255-8678 to get the home TV setup of your dreams. Look, we're all spending a lot more time at home these days. Make sure your TV setup is done the right way and the way that you want it. Whether it's indoors or outdoors, AV Consultations can take care of all of your TV wants and needs. Just give them a call. 255-8678. And the One to Know podcast is also brought to you by Altstadt Brewery. Altstadt Beer, it is German beer made here. Brewed in Central Texas. Available wherever you shop for beer across Central Texas, also in the DFW Metroplex and Houston areas as well. Give it a try. It's a phenomenal beer. They've got all sorts of different brews. I promise you will not regret it. It's Altstadt beer. No impurities, no regrets. Of course, today we are going to preview the upcoming game with Baylor, which at least today, Thursday at 1.23 p.m., is set to happen after the Bears had a little bit of a, or more, maybe I should say, a lot of bit of a COVID issue. Hmm. Um, but it seems like they will have enough players to participate. They returned to practice this past week. Um, how many players they have is kind of to be determined. But, you know, the Big 12 said you only have to have 63. So as long as the Bears have that, uh, we will be able to preview the upcoming game. Uh, but before we get into that and even some of the off-field storylines that have Reason this week regarding the eyes of Texas, I wanted to talk about a story that I wrote uh, for Inside Texas the other day um, and that y'all talked about on the triple option as well the other day. And it kind of revolves around the hero ball offense. And I called it the, the save us Sam Ellinger offense that Texas so often is forced to get into. Now, there's a lot of reasons before we get into the statistics of you know, what that offense looks like, why it's efficient, and, you know, why maybe Texas should get into it. We have to probably look and see why it even the, – the, the first numbers, the regular 55, first 55 minutes of regulation numbers just for Sam Ellinger and the passing offense look like they do. So if you watch the conference game for the Longhorns this year, uh, basically the offense hasn't been great. I think the, the Texas Tech game – uh, is a little bit different because Texas Tech has an abhorrent defense and nowhere near uh, a, even a struggling OU defense and a normally pretty darn good and sound TCU defense. So we know that the, the Texas Tech defense um, has its problems, and that's why that game was high scoring. But even then, there are a lot of portions of that game and throughout into all of conference play where there wasn't really enough good offense on the field. The passing game was limited often because it got into difficult third down situations. And that's also indicative indicative of a struggling running game. The Longhorns just have not had a good running game. And Sam Ellinger has become the leading rusher in multiple categories for the Longhorns. So the point of that article was that in the last five minutes of regulation in overtime, the numbers Sam Ellinger put is putting up, dwarfs what he's able to do in the first 55 minutes 
of regulation in those conference games. And the most striking statistic, I think there are two actually, is the yards per attempt and the touchdown production. In the last five minutes of regulation and overtime in conference games, Sam Ellinger has an 8.32 yards per attempt average. Uh, when it's not that, when it's 50, first 55 minutes, it's 5.47. And Brad, I think, you know, even if you're not a super big stat nerd or big into college football analytics or anything like that, 5.47 yards per attempt is a pretty low number. And I think that kind of speaks to just how much the Longhorn offense, even only in Sam Ellinger's passing numbers, I think that speaks to how much the overall offense has struggled even this year. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, the numbers tell the story, and you did a great job putting your article together. Highly encourage anyone to check it out on InsideTexas.com if you have not yet. Your numbers back it up, but also the eye test backs it up, right? I mean, this offense has gone through long stretches where they have struggled to get things going. And one of the numbers that's misleading, right? Sometimes stats don't tell the whole story. Texas is number one in the country in scoring offense right now, Joe. I mean, this team's averaging 51 points per game. Now, it definitely helps to have played five overtimes, which is what Texas has done, four against Oklahoma and one against Texas Tech. Those obviously inflate the numbers. So from the outside, if you're not paying attention to this team, if you're not watching the games, you see that stat and you're thinking, oh, man, the offense must be really good. They must be firing on all cylinders, and they must be effective for all four quarters of every game. But that has not been the case, and it's taken some miracles for this team to have a chance in any of these games. Hell, they're lucky to not be 0-3 in conference play, right? Down by a couple of scores, down by 15 points with under three minutes to go in Lubbock, and they somehow found a way to win that game. Obviously, the miracle comeback against Oklahoma to force overtime. They ended up losing that football game, but there's been so many stretches this year of ineptitude from this Texas offense, and yeah, it seems like when Texas needs to get things going, when they finally have to, like there's no choice. We have to score on this possession to have a chance to win this football game. Sam Ellinger and company have found a way to get it done. Talked about the Tech game, talked about the Oklahoma game, and even though the TCU game didn't end the way that we wanted it to end, Texas was able to march down the field, get all the way down to the one-yard line before the Keontae Ingram fumble. So they were basically right on the cusp of scoring there when they absolutely had to score a touchdown with TCU in front late in the football game. So we can get into the reasons for why that is the case, but... I mean, your point that you made in your article is very true. It's very accurate. This offense takes way too long to get things going, and Sam Ellinger's numbers are definitely symbolic of that, right? He's put up some pedestrian numbers for the majority of games this year, but down the stretch, when this offense needs to make plays, number 11 is finding a way to get it done to at least uh, give this team a chance to be in these games late. And that kind of points to two, I guess if you're a Longhorn fan, two troubling quotes from the coaching staff. And one came right after that Oklahoma game. I'm not sure if it was a, a question Quan Cosby asked or maybe if uh, Roger Wallace or Craig Way asked. But I think on the on the post-game show uh, before you guys go on, you and Kevin do the, the on the horn, they had the Longhorn Radio Network post-game show. And they were able to ask Tom Herman a question, I think about the offense going at tempo. I still haven't found a – a recording of it, but I saw it pop up on social media after the game and also on you know various websites who's caught it. And Tom Herman had a quote that said, you know, it's a shame we have to go at tempo for our offense to be effective. Uh. And I, I saw that, and in the post-game press conference, I asked, I asked him, you know, can you maybe expand on that? And he made this point to where, you know, 
I, I should find the exact quote. Let me see if I can get it up real quick. But uh, he said something along the lines of, I would hope that, you know, we don't have to win, play games to win 65-55 in order to win. You know, Tom Herman has talked about the need to play complementary football and having a good defense and a good running game and uh, being able to, to stretch the field based off of that running game and with RPOs. Um, but that hasn't won games so far. Uh, what has won him games or at least gotten him into games is simply letting Sam Ellinger do what every other quarterback in the Big 12 is has a propensity to do, and that is find receivers in the passing game. The other quote uh, that, what, that actually came about from yesterday uh, with Mike Yersich, the, the offensive coordinator, uh, I asked him, and let me see if I can get this going again because my phone is moving a little bit slowly. <laughs> Uh, I asked him, you know, basically I presented him with the premise of that article. You know, you have these numbers, eight, eight uh, yards per attempt in the last five minutes plus overtime, you know, less than 5.5 and anything else. And, you know, obviously going tempo at a full game is difficult and there are pitfalls. If you have three straight incompletions and yeah, that puts the defense right back on the field. And no matter what type of football you want to play on offense, that does nothing to help your defense. But I asked him, you know, I know the situation dictates that you have to try and score quickly there, uh, but when you see the offense work in those situations as well as it does, how do, how do you try and move those principles into the other 55 minutes of the game? And here's his response. He says, it's a very good question. I don't have a great answer for you on that particular question. I think a lot of times you're in a situation where you may be trying to jam the ball in and taking a risk where you would take a check down if it was in normal situations. A lot of times if you know you have to score and there's opportunities to go for it on third and long, you're going to try and rip it in a tight window, whereas maybe you check it down in the first or second quarter, third quarter, whatever it may be. I think the impact of the game and what's at stake can sometimes dictate the aggressiveness of your mentality throwing the ball down the field. Now, I, I, I understand that maybe I caught him a little – off guard with that question because it was a pretty pointed question, but the, like we mentioned, the numbers are right there. And for him to go, I don't have a great answer for you on that question. In addition to Tom Herman saying, you know, we don't want to be, maybe not want to have our type of program that wins games 65-55. At this point, you know, the point is to win games. And yeah. we go back to a quote. I think I said on the last show, the guy who flips the switch on the tower doesn't care what the score is. Hmm. He's just told to flip the switch. Right. And at this point, you know, Tom Herman is, I don't want to say he's refusing to use the winning strategy, but he is sticking, he's more so sticking with the strategy he believes that will work. But, you know, throughout these three conference games has shown that it is not working to the level yeah. one. Well, it's not just these three conference games, Joe. It's throughout the last three years as well. And it feels like Tom Herman is so stubborn. Like, he doesn't want to win if it isn't his way, right? He would rather win his way than win games at all. And he would never admit to something like that. But that sort of feels like what's going on here. And the quote, I think we talked about it last week, the quote about the tempo, right? It's a shame that we have to go tempo to score points. That is the most glass-half-empty comment I've ever heard. And Tom Herman is a guy who always preaches optimism, right? We're always optimistic. We're always confident in ourselves, in our locker room. He's been glass half full 
in his press conferences for the vast majority of the time that he's been at the University of Texas. Despite some really bad things happening on the field, he's tried to stay confident and optimistic. But to say something like that, like it's a shame that we have to go up-tempo, that is glass half-empty. The glass half-full way would be to look at that would be, hey, we've got a cheat code here. Like Every time we go hurry up, no huddle, every time we go super quick, super up-tempo, we score. So let's do that more often because that seems to work. Let's w- let's not wait until we're down by two scores with three minutes to go before we start to implement our best offense. Let's try to do that for all four quarters. And there's plenty of examples across college football. Hell, across this league, look at Oklahoma last year. Oklahoma's defense last year was pretty good, but their offense was still going up-tempo. They were still putting up 42-plus points per game, and they won the conference championship and made it to the college football playoff. Like, it's worked for Oklahoma, the team that's dominated this league. They've been winning 65-55 to games and 55-45 to games, and nobody complains up there, right? Because they're finding ways to win this conference. So... That's such a glass half empty. That's such a negative way to look about this. You've got something that really, really works for your offense, and it's not a one-time thing. We've seen it three weeks in a row. We're going hurry up, no huddle has worked for the Longhorns down the stretch. Why not bring that out earlier in games so you're not having to play from a multiple possession deficit late in the fourth quarter? That, to me, makes absolutely no sense. And it's not just the hurry up, no huddle. I think a lot of us have been fixated on on just the tempo, and it's that is a, a significant part of it, but it's the way that they run things at tempo. Texas has a pretty well-known five-wide setup from their 11 personnel. They, they, they're going to stick with 11 personnel uh, because, yes, it does allow them to do some things in the run game that 10 personnel does not. Um, <laughs> what, what, what things does it allow, Joe? This run game has been terrible this year. I mean, outside of Sam Ellinger scrambles, this run game has done absolutely nothing. So, I mean, we had this conversation all off-season long, like, don't get married to 11 personnel. Don't get married to having a tight end on the football field if it doesn't benefit your offense. And here we are still having these conversations four weeks into the season. I agree. But I, at the same time, that's a, I, I, I understand why they choose not to completely fold that yeah. card philosophically. But still, what we have seen is when they go into five wide sets or two-by-two two sets with Silly back in the backfield, um, and run it at tempo, that is what has been successful on offense. Not so much the normal, typical, you know, th- you know, three by one with the tight end or, you know, even just having you know, or 12 personnel or anything like that. It's when they go into full on spread sets and run it at tempo when they are required to in these late game situations that they succeed. And, and, you know, speaking of Baylor, one of the teams that got this early in the decade for as important as a person in program that he ran, he was pretty good at football, and it was Art Bryles. And he understood that scoring as many points as quickly as possible was the best way to win in the Big 12. And, and Lincoln Riley, I think, understands that. I think Mike Gundy understands that. I think everybody seems to understand it and put it into practice, but Tom Herman doesn't. Like, Art Bryles, there was, a, I think, a game that Ian Boyd over inside Texas has referenced, and it was Baylor versus Kansas State. And it was, this was Bill Snyder, Kansas State, as much of a difference in styles as you could go with. And Kansas State played ball control, and they ran the Klein offense and did everything like that. I think they killed Kansas Baylor in time of possession. But you know what happened? Baylor's in those that limited time possession, going at their light-speed tempo, scored a bunch of points really, really quickly to where Kansas State had to play outside of their element 
and then, you know, try and come back because Baylor had amassed so many points. Mm-hmm. That's how you win games. You win by scoring more than the others. Yeah. Now, how do how does Texas, like we mentioned, pull that into full on games? You have to you do have to strike a balance. You can't just flip the switch and change into, you know, an air raid coach because that's honestly not on Herman's expertise. I don't think it's Mike Yersich's expertise and that's a, that's there would probably still be growing pains as far as getting that offense going. But they need to emphasize what is obviously working and we haven't seen enough emphasis to believe, you know, that that's going to be something that they do over these last few games. Yeah, I'm just really nervous. I mean, Dave Aranda, the head coach at Baylor, is a phenomenal defensive mind, right? That's why he got the head job at Baylor for the work that he's done as a defensive coordinator over the years at LSU and in the Big Ten. He's great. He has to have seen some of the things on film that have been struggling, that have been plaguing this Texas offense, right? I mean, the wide receivers on the outside can't get off bump and run coverage. And the only reason Texas was able to make that comeback against Oklahoma down the stretch was because Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator at OU, stopped spying Sam Ellinger. Starting in the third overtime, he put a spy back on Sam Ellinger, which took away Sam Ellinger's rushing ability, and Oklahoma defense was able to make some plays and get off the field and win the football game. So there have been some trends that have been plaguing Texas all year long that I think Dave Aranda is going to see on film, and that's going to make things tough for this Tom Herman offense, and they've got to make some adjustments. They can't be doing the same thing they've done over and over again to this point in the season. Otherwise, for the fourth straight conference game, they're going to be trailing late, needing scores and crunch time. So I think that's a good place to jump from the problems with the offense to the Baylor game. Uh, and I think, like you mentioned, Dave Aranda and Tom Herman, that's a good place to start. And if you read the game plan on Inside Texas today, uh, it's about Wayne Ducks. <laughs> Ian Boyd with a pretty catchy title mm-hmm. there. And kind of one of my takeaways was that Dave Aranda runs the Todd Orlando defense. But where Todd Orlando ran his defense without a steering wheel – Dave Aranda actually has a steering wheel on it and knows, you know, when to use that stack box to bring the right guys on pressure and not bring the random blitz from Lampasas. So that's the big takeaway I saw. Uh, and as far as the personnel, defense is where they have their stars. And their stars mostly are in that linebacker spot. They have Terrell Bernard, who may be one of the best defensive players in the Big 12. They have Dylan Doyle, who transferred from Iowa and just is a true middle linebacker in every sense of the word. And they have one more guy um, who kind of plays that boundary linebacker role that Joseph Osai played a bunch, or similar to what he sort of plays now, um, an Arkansas Arkansas State grad transfer. Uh, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, I know he went to college and I know where he plays the game. So uh, looking at the Baylor defense, you know, James Lynch is not there. James Lockhart I don't think is there anymore. forgot who their nose tackle was last year but that that defensive line that helped Matt rule and all those guys last year uh, is not there anymore but they do have linebackers probably better linebackers in Texas if we're being honest and I'm wondering you know how is that going to maybe maybe that's what should inspire Texas to air it out a little bit more knowing that they're going to be running against maybe not the same elite defensive line that the Bears had last year but a formidable one Backed by solid linebackers, coordinated by a national championship level defensive coordinator. So, you know, what do you see from that Bears defense that Texas should avoid, and then what should they possibly attack? I think it's William Bradley King. Is that the name you're looking for, the grad transfer? 
that that might be it. Okay. Right. He's a defensive line size guy from Arkansas State. That's definitely I think right. that's the guy you're thinking of. Yeah, Baylor's defense. Look, it's so hard to judge Baylor, right? I mean, they've had more games canceled due to COVID than they've had played this year. Their only two games are against two of the worst teams in the Big 12, right? They beat up on Kansas week one, and they lost to West Virginia in double overtime. They haven't played a game in three weeks, right? It's going to be three weeks from Saturday, the last time Baylor took the football field. So it's really hard to judge this team, maybe harder than any other team in the Big 12, because we just haven't seen a whole lot of them to this point. But defensively, through two weeks, Baylor's been really, really good. Now, once again, Kansas and West Virginia. Two low-powered offenses, two of the worst teams in this conference. But they only gave up 14 points to Kansas, and they only gave up 14 points in regulation to West Virginia. So I think that was a huge question for Baylor, right? They lost eight starters on defense. You kind of ran down a list of some of the biggest names that are off to the NFL or just graduated. Obviously, they had to replace their entire coaching staff, too. We know that. But the defense so far has been really, really, really sound. Really, really good. They're getting good play from their cornerbacks. You mentioned their linebackers, though. That's been the best unit on the defensive side of the football. Uh, I, I really like what I've seen from the Baylor defense to this point. Now, once again, level of competition, not very good. Uh, but they haven't given up a whole lot of big plays. I think they forced four turnovers against West Virginia a couple of weeks ago. You feel like that's a game they probably should have won. But they won the turnover battle. They forced four takeaways. They were getting pressure on Jarrett Dagey. So, yeah, I feel like everybody expected this Baylor defense to take a huge step back, and there's no doubt Texas is the toughest test they're going to have to face in terms of an opposing offense. But so far through a couple of weeks, the Baylor defense has been pretty good. Obviously, we don't know who's dealing with COVID and how many of those guys are going to be available on Saturday, but thus far that has been the unquestioned strength for the Baylor team. It's their defense. Yeah, and I, I'm going to disagree a little with you on West Virginia. I think that's a team that I don't know if they're – I don't know if worst is the right label. I think they're definitely in middle of the pack Big 12 team, but maybe that's just because I'm a believer in, in Neil Brown. But to go back-to-back and, and, and give up 14 points, you know, against anybody in, in the Big 12, even if it is a weak Kansas team, that's still pretty impressive. I think this will – I don't know where this defense will stack up as far as the best ones that the Longhorns have faced this year. I think you definitely have to slot it behind TCU – I don't know if we know enough about, or actually, I think we know enough about Oklahoma's to where, you know, you don't know where whether they're two or three. I think it's very clear that Texas Tech has the worst defense that Texas has played. But you know, this Baylor defense, and it may not, it may be, uh, it may not be a a huge achievement, but it may be the second best defense that Texas plays this year, uh, depending once again on who is healthy and how in shape they look. Um, trying to think of anything else on that defensive side of the ball. What anything else comes to mind for you that that Texas really needs to look out for? I, I think what we will see this year is a lot of players in Dave Aranda's system, but who have come down from Matt Rule's recruiting philosophy. You remember when he first got there, he was all about getting speed, 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 and then working and relying on his coaching ability to get those extremely fast athletes, guys like Graylin Arnold. Uh, going from, you know, being athletes into football players. And now we're seeing, you know, if Dave Aranda can continue what Matt Rule did successfully in almost winning the Big 12 this year. But I'm trying to think of, you know, anything other than that. I feel like, you know, Texas should have an idea of what Dave Aranda is going to look like because of their experience 
seeing the Orlando defense literally every day over the past couple of years, but I'm trying to think of other big names for this defense and, and, and things that Texas really needs to look out for. But I'm kind of of the opinion that this is a game for Texas to prove things to itself, not so much about beating the opponent just because we know that if Texas can prove those things to itself, it'll be just fine. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. I mean, Baylor doesn't have a ton of star power on the defensive side of the football. They they look pretty sound to this point, which, you know, that's a big question. We're seeing that all across the country in college football, and I know Tom Herman has used that as an excuse a number of times here uh, with the lack of offseason, right, the truncated offseason, the lack of practices that teams got. It's really causing an impact around the sport, and it's really impacting teams that I think had a lot of turnover on their coaching staff. We're seeing that here at Texas. Baylor has a completely new coaching staff, right? A new head coach, new coordinators, all new assistants pretty much. I know they hired a couple of guys or promoted a couple of guys who are on Matt Rule's staff. But despite that, you know, Baylor's looked pretty fundamentally sound on the defensive side of the football. The question is, once again, the toughest test that they've run into on offense, but also the fact that they haven't played a game in three weeks, right? Like, where are they mentally right now and they have to be mentally drained like getting prepped to play multiple games in the past couple of weeks and having them be canceled due to COVID we don't know how many guys are going to be out for this game on Saturday right how many second and third stringers are going to have to play in this football game so uh, there's a lot of question marks with this Baylor football team in terms of COVID and in terms of just uh, new personnel that Texas hasn't seen before I think we with that we can move to the offensive side of the ball and again going back to the, the COVID issue that's always going to be there, we don't know who's going to be marching out there for the Baylor Bears. I mean, I, and I think, you know, one position, you, you think about that at every single position, but you got to think about that at the offensive line. And, you know, if one or two of those guys, even just one of those guys goes down in the first year, uh, in, in the first year of the system, we know how much that can make a huge impact. I think we saw that in Charlie Strong's first year uh, with Dominic Espinosa going down. Um, we know we just know Connor Williams going down and Tom Herman's first year as well. We know how much the impact of losing one offensive lineman in that cohesive group can make a difference, and that's something I'm definitely going to look at. I think I'm going to try and get pretty get there as early as the uh, UT athletic department will let me on Saturday, just so I can try and get a measure of which Baylor Bears and also, of course, which Longhorns are out there. But as far as the Baylor offense. You know, this was a team that had Denzel Mims last year, uh, had several other pass catchers and guys who could make an impact deep down the field. Charlie Brewer could throw the ball deep down the field last year, and that is an aspect of this offense that is missing a lot. They're missing that guy like Mims. Charlie Brewer does not have the arm strength to make a lot of the throws, and they just seem kind of limited into trying to dink and dunk the ball down the field, and opponents have really tried to take that away from them this year. Charlie Brewer can still run uh, to his own peril at times, uh, but that's basically the, the, the threat of him running and him hitting a guy in a short pass. It basically seems to be, at least from the highlights I saw of the West Virginia game, what they're able to do on offense this year. They're not able to do much on offense this year, Joe. I mean, they're horrible on that side of the football. Uh, they're ninth in the Big 12 in terms of total offense ahead of only Kansas. You brought up Charlie Brewer's struggles of throwing the ball down the field. I don't know where that came from. Like, I know Charlie Brewer doesn't have the best arm in the world, but I feel like that hasn't been a huge problem for him over the course of his Baylor career. But, like, they don't throw the ball down the field. They're, like, scared to throw the football down the field. I don't know if that's a Larry Fedora decision. I don't know if that's a Charlie Brewer decision. But he, he did throw it a couple of times, I guess, against West Virginia. 
But I think the last play of the game for Baylor on offense, he threw an interception in the end zone. He was trying to take a deep shot, right? First a goal from the or first down from the 25-yard line, that first play of double overtime. He took a shot in the end zone, and he wasn't even close to his intended receiver. So, yeah, Charlie Brewer, the arm strength just isn't there. The accuracy on those deep balls just isn't there. So that's advantage Texas, right? I mean, you think you don't have to worry too much about the vertical passing game for Baylor because to this point, we just haven't seen it yet. So I know everybody loves Charlie Brewer around here, and I'm sure we'll hear a million times on the broadcast this Saturday that he was not offered by the University of Texas, Joe. I'm not sure if you knew that, by the way, if, if uh, Charlie Brewer was not offered by Texas, but now you do know. Uh, he does not look good, though, and Baylor's running game does not look good. I mean, they're they're uh, I think they're worst in the conference in terms of rushing yards per game. As a team, they're only averaging three yards a carry. John Lovett is their leading running back this year through two games. I think he has 103 rushing yards. Like, when you think Baylor, you brought up Art Bryles. When you think Art Bryles' success, when you think Matt Rule's success, like, a lot of people, especially with Bryles, they would just watch SportsCenter highlights and see these, like, 70-yard passing bombs to guys like Corey Coleman. Uh, And, like, that was a huge part of Baylor's offense, of course. But what made them so good, what made them so effective on that side of the football was the ability to run the ball efficiently. And that's not happening this year. Like, that's been a huge staple. Whenever Baylor teams are good, whenever their offenses are good, they're able to run the football very, very well. That was the case last year when they got all the way to the Big 12 championship game. This year, they're not able to run the football at all. And I think a lot of that has to do with the offensive line, right? You brought it up a little bit. Uh, They're inexperienced, and who knows what they're going to look like COVID-wise, but that group has been really bad. Charlie Brewer was sacked six times against West Virginia. A couple of those were on him, but the offensive line has been getting no push for Baylor this year and I know they put up 47 points against Kansas but they had two kickoff returns for touchdowns so like a lot of that is inflated a lot of their scoring offense numbers are inflated because of success they've had on special teams in week one and then the fact that they made it to double overtime against Baylor in week two or against West Virginia excuse me in week two so I mean the Baylor offense has looked horrible Horrible, horrible, horrible. And this Texas defense, I think they've played a little bit better over the last couple of weeks, but obviously a ton of room for improvement. Uh, If you're looking to really get things back on track, going up against this Baylor offense is not a bad recipe for that. I agree completely. I think so far we've kind of seen that that Texas Tech game has really been the biggest outlier. And that's not to say that the Texas defense has been performing at an elite level, uh, but it's been performing at a level that's you know good enough. It's definitely an improvement over Todd Orlando, which isn't saying a whole lot. Hmm. Uh, but it's definitely been performing at a level to where Texas should be able to win games with the defensive effort that they have been giving. Yes, they have lapses. Every defense has lapses, and they need to eliminate it. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not over. I think you've seen improvement um, in most facets of the game on defense uh, since since that tech game. Now that means they, this is going to be a game for that defensive line to really try and pin the ears back and get Charlie Brewer. They're going to have to be smart with it because as we mentioned, he can run, uh, but Charlie Brewer as well, he's going to have to be smart with himself because if he runs, he's opening himself up to injury risk. And we know how injury prone he has been. So I think this should be another game for Texas to really see what they're able to do on defense um, I know they may be missing a couple guys. We'll see if Caden Stearns and Chris Brown are able to go after Caden Stearns didn't even play against Oklahoma and Chris Brown added another injury, uh, but he seems like the guy to play through nearly anything. Um, we'll see what the safeties do. We'll see what the corners do. Uh, we'll see if these guys are able to really force Baylor into you know one trick on offense considering that they lack the star power. I think it will be interesting to see what happens with 
Larry Fedora running his offense against Texas last year as an analyst, you know, obviously not really able to do any play calling, anything like that, not really able to do a whole lot of instruction. Uh, but this is, this is a guy that Texas should really know what he's bringing to the table. I'm sure when they brought him in as an analyst, they didn't just let him sit on the side. They wanted to see what his playbook looked like, and I'm sure they have some idea of it. So I'm curious to see maybe what tricks that uh, uh, Larry Fedora pulls out of the book and uh, see how this game goes. Anything else on the Baylor offense? I'm yeah. trying to think. It was weird. You know, Tom Herman, during his press conference on Monday, he was asked about you know, scouting Baylor, right? How tough are they to scout because they've only played a couple of games and they've got this new coaching staff. And I thought it was weird, like Tom Herman's response to that in regards to Larry Fedora. He says he doesn't know a whole lot about Larry Fedora on offense because Fedora obviously wasn't calling plays last year at Texas, but he wasn't calling plays uh, for the vast majority of his tenure as the head coach at North Carolina either. But it was always Larry Fedora's offense that UNC was running. Like, they had four or five different offensive coordinators during Larry Fedora's tenure in Chapel Hill. So maybe that was just coach speak, and maybe I'm overreading this too much, but there should be plenty to look at when scouting Larry Fedora's offense, right? You don't just have these two games with him as the offensive coordinator at Baylor. You can go back and look at some of the stuff that he did at North Carolina to try to get a little bit of a feel for what they are going to do uh, this Saturday against this Texas defense. But overall... Yeah, I mean, look, if Texas has a horrible game on defense, then that's a huge problem because this is one of the worst offenses they're going to go up against for the remainder of the year, right? I mean, outside of Kansas, this probably is the worst offense that Texas will see the rest of the way. So if they give up like 40 points, if they miss a bunch of tackles, if they commit a bunch of stupid penalties in the secondary, then that is a really, really bad sign moving forward the rest of the way in 2020. And. I think that's a good place to go into from the micro, from the macro. You know, Texas needs this game. The the pressure on Tom Herman, or maybe not the pressure, but the patience on Tom Herman is running very, very short. And a loss in this game, you know, I, I always kind of, and how I write things on Inside Texas, do like to note that, you know, no matter what is actually going on right now, numbers and statistics and standings, say that Texas still has a chance at the Big 12 title, and they do. They only have two conference losses or six more to play, and an 8-2, and two, or would it be 7-2 and two conference record, puts them in a very strong position to get into the Big 12 title. But that, although however unlikely that seems, it still is out there. But if they lose this game, basically every single goal that the team had in front of them this year is not there. And the last five games become games for pride. And we've kind of seen what happens when Texas has to play games for pride. It doesn't go, it didn't go very well last year. And it went, you know, up and down in Tom Herman's first year in 2017. So, you know, they're all, they're all must win games from now on, essentially for Tom Herman, if he really wants to stay within the big 12 title hunt. And I know hearing those words is kind of, Maybe me being a little bit uh, aloof and uh, a little bit naive because I'm sure maybe you're in this category and I'm sure a lot of others are. A lot of people have already given up on yeah. the season and, and don't, you know, or, and think that the goals are going to disappear in pretty short order. Right. Now, what you're saying is technically accurate, so I'm glad you're saying it, right? I mean, this team is not mathematically <laughs> eliminated from Big 12 Conference Championship contention, but are they going to get there? No. And they still have to play the three 
toughest teams in this conference, at least in terms of Big 12 standings right now, right? There's three unbeaten teams in the Big 12, and the Longhorns have played none of them. That's Oklahoma State, Iowa State, and Kansas State. So the schedule doesn't do Texas a whole lot of favors moving forward. And with what we've seen from them over the first three weeks of conference play, I don't know how you can be optimistic that this team is going to run the table. Uh, yeah, you know, I want to ask you this, Joe. Like, do you think, because everyone, you mentioned the pressure mounting on Tom Herman, and it sort of feels like his days are numbered here in Austin, Texas. But a couple of people have asked me this question, and I still feel like the answer to this is no, but things can change, right? I mean, before the year, I didn't think there was a scenario that Tom Herman was going to get fired after the year, right? I mean, unless Texas went like 2-8, and eight, I thought Tom Herman was going to get a fifth year at the University of Texas because of the buyout, because of the economic situation going on due to the pandemic, because maybe the look that it would create by firing a guy and paying all that money for him to not work anymore. I thought it was going to take like a colossal, colossal failure for Tom Herman to not be the coach after this year. Now the question I keep getting asked is, well, is there anything that could happen that would cause Tom Herman to lose his job midseason, right, during the season? Do you think that's a, a yes? Do you think, you know, if Texas loses on Saturday or maybe they lose a couple of more games in a row, they've got Oklahoma State in Stillwater next Saturday. So, you know, the Longhorns are probably going to be underdogs in that game. So if they lose on Saturday, that could mean four straight losses in conference play for Tom Herman. I mean, combining that with what's going on with the eyes of Texas, and it sort of feels like he's got a lack of control over this institution right now, do you think there is a scenario in which Tom Herman loses his job before the year comes to an end? Every other year I had covered football, I would have said no way, just because Texas historically does not do midseason firings. Mac Brown had to wait until after the, the final game. Charlie Strong, even after Kansas, they waited until after TCU. Um, Makovic, Akers, even Royal, I'm sure, but I, I, you know, going, Mick Williams going back, I think they waited until the end of the year. Predates us a little bit, but I think if there was a midseason firing, we would have, it would have stuck out in our memory. And, you know, again, normally I would have said, yeah, you know, I don't think there's a way that he gets a midseason firing. But this is one, in the age of the portal, this is so much different, and there has to be swift movement because any sort of dilly-dallying, I guess, to put it in a very jovial term, has drastic effects. It would have drastic effects on recruiting because there are these kids have not been able to go on visits, haven't been able to see coaches, haven't been able to do anything, and they're still planning on signing on the, on, in, in the middle of December. So if you wait until the end of the season and you feel like that's the way to go, you have to have a coaching search done pretty darn quickly or else you're just going to be sitting in no man's land. And you thought that class of 2017 was low for Texas standards. Oh man, it would be much, much worse. You also have to throw in the age of the portal to where, you know, if things get really, really bad as well as COVID opt-outs, because that's a possibility, if things get really, really bad, you may just have players jump in the portal and jump ship. Yeah. So I used to not think that it was something that Texas would do. Now, I think it's not, not to say that I think it's going to happen to Herman, but I don't think that's an option that you have to take off the table just because of the way things have changed for college football in 2020. I think that, that moving swiftly is the best action and waiting until the end of the season when you kind of know things after, you know, after the results you, you may have mentioned have to take place, a couple more losses to you know, better teams. 
it, this, there is no point in waiting if they feel like they have everything that they need, just because the risks of waiting too long are could be could set the program pro, pro, program back even further. Yeah, no, I think that's well said, and I would still say it's more likely than not that a change does not get made during the season and that something happens after the year. But, man, if this thing continues to fall off the rails a little bit more, then I wouldn't put the you know I wouldn't put the percentages at zero, right? I mean, Tom Herman, it feels like he's pissed off just about everybody there is to piss off. The big money donors, uh, the supporters of this program, the fan base, the administration at UT, the players as well. Like, he's running out of guys in his corner. And if that trend continues, then there is a way I think he loses his job midseason. But it sort of feels like, Joe, that... I mean, we, we bring up the conversation. I, I think it's one of the same, right? We're talking about, well, can Texas find its way to Arlington at some point in December for the Big 12 championship game? It feels like if they don't, they're going to make a change at head coach, right? I mean, this recruiting class is already kind of looking like a transition type of recruiting class, and there's all sorts of conversations being had behind the scenes that we get to talk about. But, you know, even Longhorn fans, everybody out there seems to think that a change is likely to be made if Texas doesn't get to Arlington this year. So, it sort of feels like those two uh, conversations are one and the same, right? Unless Texas can find a way to get hot here and make it to Arlington, and it probably feels like at some point within the next three months that uh, there is going to be a change made atop this football program. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you 100%. And I think you can even look back at the last three coaching changes to really see um, what, why this year is a little different. And I think, I think I'm going to have this right. Um, 1997, I think that was McAvick's last year. And it became really obvious after, I think it was, I think it was UCLA, Route, Route 66, right? I think that's when it became really, really obvious. And then with, with Mac Brown, you know, this was a very different situation. Beloved coach, uh, had some very powerful people in, in his corner. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and we saw how that all played out. Uh, but he was beloved, and it, was, it took a lot. It took so many different factors yeah. for Mac Brown. And they had to bring in they had to bring Charlie. in a new AD to fire that guy. That's how beloved he was here. Exactly, Charlie Strong for his his problems with his win loss record. People really liked him. I mm-hmm. mean, they thought he was a very likable coach. He was a very likable coach. They thought that his character and what he had done for the program and trying to could clean it up and make it a, a program filled with people that, that Texas could be proud of may have netted him a chance at another year until that Kansas loss. And he still had some people who were, you know, all a little reluctant to finally pull, pull the plug on that one. I don't think Tom Herman's got anybody in his corner right now. And if he did, and if he does, there are very, very few in number. And I think that is a, a big factor into why, you know, that, that if, if things do get worse, thinking about going into midseason is, is on the table and yep. you know maybe it's a possibility we'll see yeah no doubt what uh what do we have next do we go prediction time for texas baylor or any other macro thoughts you want to hit here i think it's time to hit the prediction because as much news as is with texas football there's also plenty of news as far as the university of texas also related to football so what's your prediction i think this is I think it's going to be a pretty low-scoring game, and I want to see if what you think because I went I went real low-scoring. Yeah, one. I think I'm in the same corner as you, man. Uh, the stat, you know, Texas is a nine to ten point favorite right now. I'm actually seeing eight and a half on some sites right now 
for the line of this game coming up on Saturday. Tom Herman's record against the spread at Texas in Big 12 games. A lot of disclaimers there, a lot of bullet points there. Tom Herman against Big 12 opponents. When the spread is six or more, he is 4-9-1 and one against the spread. Four wins, nine losses, one push against the spread. So generally in these situations, this is where Texas plays down to its competition, and these games are a lot closer than Vegas thinks they are going to be. So I'm going to pick Baylor to cover, but I'm going to pick Texas to win. I'm going to go 28-20 to 20 final score. So the Longhorns just missed the cover. It's close to that 8.5, 9 number, but they don't quite get it. And I'm with you. I think this is a relatively low-scoring contest on Saturday. Uh, Baylor's defense is playing really, really good football. The Texas offense is sputtering at times. And then I just don't think the Baylor offense is good enough to do a whole lot against anybody right now. So I'll go 28-20. Good guess. I'm not too far. I went 28-13 Texas. I think that this Baylor offense just really doesn't have its way right now and that Texas has enough of its way to make life miserable for them. And four touchdowns, you know, for Texas is not a whole lot, but I think (laughs) – Tom Herman is going to get his wish. He's going to get a lot of complimentary football this weekend, in my opinion. So I'm going to go 28-13 with this one. So moving from on-field matters to off-the-field matters, the eyes of Texas is back in the news. Once again, um, it's, it's big, you know, especially after that photo, Sam Ellinger came out after, after the – Oklahoma game and on our last podcast I know I mentioned uh, put a little bit more context to it that yes while that photo snapped for Sam Ellinger only and there was a lot of confusion as to whether the eyes of Texas would be played it just doesn't look good especially with something as important to a lot of people as the eyes of Texas so once again uh, Tom Herman had to come out this week and make a statement during his Monday press conference about the eyes of Texas and how it would be handled and I'm missing the exact wording, but the overall gist that I got was that Tom Herman in Texas was not going to require anybody to sing the song if they didn't want to, but they wanted to make sure that players were out there to say thank you to the fans and to the school at that opportunity instead of just running running off during the playing of the song and not paying it any mind. So, Brad... We're talking about this again, and not only are we talking about this again, this is getting a lot of run in the national media. And I think that, you know, right or wrong, there's, there's a tendency towards, in, in the national media, to lean towards the pro kid side, towards the pro student athlete side um, in a lot of different issues. And I completely understand that in the world of college football. But now we've also added the band to the mix. That is now the part of the story the daily texan reported that you know there was a survey among internal survey among members of the band and enough said that they were not going to play to where if the band even was going to show up on saturday there wasn't enough to show up and then jay hartzell comes down on wednesday night and says we weren't planning on them being there anyway so i mean this seems like it's a story that's never going to end uh, and right now, it seems like there is a very clear dividing line on the way that the song is viewed with not only within a lot of the fan base, but within the team. Sometimes those views, and it seems like this one of the cases, are going head-to-head with each other. I mean, what what's next here? Do you think hmm. that 
I don't, I don't even know what's next. It, it seems like this takes a new turn every week, and the answer, you know, shifts time and time again. Yeah, this is the biggest story surrounding Texas football right now, right? I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably shaking their head, and they want to talk about the team and focus on the potential coaching, sure, coaching search. But in terms of the national outlook on this Texas program. This is what everybody is talking about. So what happened after the OU game was an embarrassment. It was a really, really bad look for this program, and that's why it became a national story once again. Uh, I will tip the cap to the Daily Texan for doing a great job of stirring the pot, right, with the headline of their article basically saying that the Texas band is not going to be there on Saturday because of the eyes of Texas. Let me see if I can pull up the exact headline there. But for those who don't know, the show band of the Southwest has not been at a Longhorn game all year long. And it has nothing to do with the eyes of Texas. That is related to COVID, right? I mean, it started out the the UTEP game, the home opener this year. They didn't go, and they made an announcement saying, we're not going to be there, and maybe we'll be back later this season for future games. But as of right now, we're not going to be in the stands at DKR for any game. So they weren't there for UTEP. They weren't there for TCU. They didn't make the trek to Lubbock, and they weren't up at the Cotton Bowl against Oklahoma. So that's not the story. A lot of people ran with that and was like, oh, my God, Texas band is boycotting. They're not showing up because of the eyes of Texas. No, no, no. Like they, they probably weren't going to show up anyways on Saturday. So uh, tip of the cap to the Daily Texan. I know a lot of people call that unethical journalism, but, hey, man, clicks are important. Views are important. Hits are important. And uh, when you're a student-run newspaper and you can find your way to, like, the front page of national publications, that means you uh, you did something right. Um Back to, I mean, the, the the question you asked me, though, Joe, you know, I, I don't know how this goes away. I mean, we, we were talking about it on the show yesterday. Like, for me, it almost feels like we're prolonging the inevitable. Uh, and the inevitable being, like, we might have to get rid of the song altogether. I think the administration, the entire university, this goes well beyond Tom Herman, right? This is the university as a whole. I think they've done a terrible job of addressing this thing. And over the summer, there was obviously that list of requests from the student-athletes, not just football players, but from a bunch of student-athletes, and hell, other students got involved with this as well, uh, requesting a bunch of things, right? The changes of the names of buildings on campus, the removal of statues on campus, and then obviously the Eyes of Texas was the biggest one. That was the headline grabber. But for some reason, the administration just thought like, okay, if we change these building names and if we remove these couple of statues and hey, we'll we'll rename the football field, Campbell-Williams Field, that's going to be enough. No one's going to care about the eyes of Texas. That's going to go away, right? No one's going to be mad about that. No one's going to worry about that. No one's going to think it's racist at all because we did all of these other things. That means we're good, which, I mean, in foresight, that's not even in hindsight because it's happening now. But at the time, we were thinking, okay, like, I I don't know if this is going away, guys. Like, this is still going to be an issue here that you're going to have to address at some point. And they didn't really address it. So that's why this has become a huge problem again. Like my question of, are we just prolonging the inevitable? Joe, you can't have your school's alma mater be this divisive. You can't have your school's alma mater be a national headline every other week. You can't have it to where you've got certain student athletes who stand and certain student athletes who don't. You can't have it to where certain band members play and certain band members don't. You can't have it where certain fans stand and put their horns up and certain fans like you just you can't have that. You cannot have your alma mater, which is supposed to be something that brings everybody together, that unifies everybody. You can't have that be as divisive as it is. So 
Uh, I, I know people, this has become a very polarizing topic, and people feel very passionately on whatever side of this argument that they're on. And I know a lot of people will get mad at me for saying this or even suggesting something like this, but to me it feels like you've got to remove the eyes of Texas to ever fully get over this thing. All right, to ever fully put this debate to bed, you're going to have to get rid of the song. And I know that pisses a lot of people off, and I know the boosters obviously don't like that, and a lot of the alumni don't like that. And I would say the majority of Texas fans don't like that, but you once again, you cannot have your alma mater, a school tradition, be as divisive as the eyes of Texas has become. Whether you agree with it being divisive or not, that's just the way it is right now. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, that, that might be when it goes away, Joe. I mean, I know people are going to be pissed if they do remove the song. It'll be an issue for the next couple of years, I'm sure, but eventually it'll move on. If you keep the eyes of Texas the way it is, then it's never going away, in my opinion. I, there's, there's, I think there's a lot to agree with in what you said and a lot to disagree with with what you said in that, yes, Texas really messed up by kicking the can down the road. They thought that, well, we'll just figure that out. Well, they didn't expect players to look. They, and I think they thought they had a solution to a problem when they just started playing it right as that UTEP game ended. Uh, literally immediately, while players even shaking hands, not giving anybody enough time to make any sort of statement or anything like that, they just started playing the song. But still, I remember kind of noticing there were several players who ran, ran back to the locker room during the song while it was being played. Uh, and that, even that, just seeing that, and, and with the 12,000 or so, or however many people were there, that, that didn't seem like a good look either. So, uh, but I don't. I, I think what you mentioned about kicking the can is absolutely correct. That was a mistake on all fronts to think it was just going to go away. The way they could have decided this was to have made a decisive action, a truly decisive action, way, way back in, in June or July. Uh, they, I know they said that the, the school song is going to remain the eyes of Texas, but they didn't really say what anybody had to do with it. And if they had said the song, will, the song will remain, and also we expect students to do this, there would have been a lot of blowback. And this is coming from someone who doesn't agree with a lot of the criticisms of the eyes of Texas. I just want to make that make that clear. I don't want to go into a ton of detail, but I there are a lot of criticisms about the song that I, I do not agree with, but if they had been decisive and said, this is our expectation, this is what the program is like, this is what we expect, then, you know, it would have been really clear and players who do, do not agree with it at all, they would have been able to make their, their case and, it, and they would, they would have been able to show their disagreement, but it would not have lingered into the football game and into the football season like it has so far. And if they had decided back then that, you know, this is our decision, we're getting rid of it. You know what else they did that with? Statues of Robert E. Lee. They didn't give anybody time to think about things when that was a controversy on campus a few years ago. They just went ahead and did it. So now, if they had just made a decisive decision back in July, we wouldn't be thinking about this. I don't think they've still even made a decisive decision, even though they've said over and over they're going to keep the song and re, what is it, reclaim the meaning of it. I don't know if this is ever going to go away. Like you mentioned, it, it may not. Um, I don't know. It's definitely not going to go away for this particular season. And I think that there are, like I mentioned, a lot of media outlets, including some that don't particularly cover football at all, 
because um, this even made the New York Times and Texas Tribune, which isn't much of a sports website, it's become a big enough issue or a big enough story to where it is now on their pages. And the story is kind of being is not really in control of the university anymore. So I, I'll disagree. I think that they're going to hang on to the song, and I think they're going to hang on through the bumps and bruises that hanging on to the song is. We'll see when it goes away, if it goes away, if it sputters out, but it will not go away as quickly as if they had made an extremely decisive action back in July, and I think that's where yeah. the top-down for the administration messed that part of it up. Yeah, they had a chance to sort of, sort of reshape the narrative of the eyes of Texas, or at least control the narrative of the eyes of Texas and try to tell people, like, here's what it means now, here's what it represents now, but they sort of kicked the can down the road, as you said, Joe, and... I don't know. I, like they might be playing too much catch up. They might be too far behind now to get everybody on the same page. So yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere right now. But in terms of like ultimately solving this problem, if there is a way to solve it, like that might be your best option is to just get rid of it and and replace it with a different song, right? Uh, either just go Texas Fight for your alma mater, or go with uh you know the Wabash Cannonball or the T E X A S or whatever. Like you've got other songs to choose from that aren't as deci- uh, divisive as the Eyes of Texas. I mean, I, I I don't know, I don't know. I get people on both sides, I get it, but it's a debate that we've had for too long already, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Like like you said, Joe. So it's a mess, man. It's a mess that they didn't have to be in, that they are solely responsible for being yeah. in right now. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I don't know how you get out of the situation because it feels like you're too far in it. Well, if they had locks of the week, perfect segue <laughs> there, they would be able to get out of that situation pretty darn easily. And I think I finally hit mine last week. Yeah, man. As soon as, as soon as the whistle blew between BYU and Houston, that the Cougars did the job for me. So I'm riding a hot streak. You, however, I think you missed. Did you miss yours? This yep. Weekend? I did think I I've, I think I've missed three in a row, Joe. Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. That is, uh, well, let's, let's see if we can turn it around. And happy for all of us, there's a lot more football for us to choose from this upcoming week. Not only is the Big Ten coming back, and that's, that's exciting in its own right, despite what that uh, conference tried to make happen through the media uh, during the summer. Um, but the Mountain West is back, too. And, and, you know, I think that time heals all wounds. Uh, we'll see how much time is needed to heal those wounds. But I'm glad that the Big Ten is back. And I think my walk of the week, in honor of them being back, is going to come from the Heartlands Conference. And two of my favorite coaches – are going at it this weekend, and Jim Harbaugh and P.J. Fleck. Mm. In Minneapolis, I think that's where game day is. Uh, it'll be, six, I think, the 6.30 ESPN kick, I'm guessing. My walk of the week, Minnesota plus three against the Wolverines. And I know I thought Dylan McCaffrey was going to be the guy entering, uh, being the quarterback this year, succeeding Shea Patterson. That's not the case. Uh, they chose a different quarterback, and McCaffrey opted out as a result. I don't think that uh, even with uh, Josh Gaddis up there calling the offense for the Wolverines, that they're going to have the star power necessary, especially at receiver, to replace what they lost last year. And it's not like that was amazing last year. And I think having, uh, what is it, Rashad Bateman uh, back from Minnesota, I think P.J. Flex got it going on. Um, 
And I think the Gophers are going to row the boat right over the Wolverines. I think, either, you know, I think they win outright, but I th- definitely think they're going to keep it within three as well. You know, the temperature forecast at kickoff Saturday night in Minnesota for that game, Joe? Uh, let's go 21 degrees. Mm, okay, uh, that's 29. 29 degrees, so Ooh. maybe... Uh, Coming to Austin a couple of days later. God bless. Yeah, that's what they're saying, right? We're supposed to get some crazy cold front next weekend, but Jesus, 29 sounds very cold right now. Uh, I like that pick. I'm back and forth between two, uh, and I know I only get one, so I'll go with one. But the other one I was considering was Ohio State against Nebraska. They're 26.5-point <laughs> favorites. I feel like Ohio State's going to put up 70 against Scott Frost and win that game by 50. So I probably should go with that as my lock of the week, but I'm not. I'm going to go with the Sunflower Showdown. I'm going to bet against my own Kansas Jayhawks. K-State, a 20-point favorite against KU in the Sunflower Showdown. Kansas just lost Puka Williams, who opted out. I know K-State is playing without Skylar Thompson, so they've got a backup quarterback in there. They are still going to run all over Kansas. 20 points, not nearly enough. As much as it pains me to do it, I think K-State beats KU for the 12th straight year, and I don't think this one is very close. So my lock of the week, I'm breaking my own rule here, betting against one of my favorite teams, but my lock of the week is going to be K-State's over KU in the Sunflower Showdown. I think that's a pretty safe set with, uh, with no more Puka, but I am interested to see how that uh, K-State offense does look without Skyler. I think that's going to be one of the Big 12 storylines to watch this week. Well, I think I think that's about it. Right at an hour, and uh, covered basically everything facing the Longhorns on and off the field this week. Uh, looking forward to this. Looking forward to this Saturday. Looking forward to an early kick so I can catch all those other games. Yeah. As well, uh, excited, excited. The Big Ten's back. The Mountain West is back. Don't have everybody back in the fold just yet, but this is going to feel like the realest weekend of college football we've had this year, right, in terms of TV schedule, in terms of just the the number of games we're going to have all day long on Saturday. It's a beautiful thing. It's great to have it back, and it's great to record another episode of the 1&O Podcast. We appreciate y'all listening. Thank you for the continued support. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Also rate this podcast if you'd be so kind, and be sure to listen to the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast with Kevin Dunn and Paul Wadlington as well. Thanks again to our sponsors, Audiovisual Consultations and Altstat Beer. Be sure to follow Joe on Twitter at josephcook89. Check out the great work he does at Inside Texas and InsideTexas.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Brad Kellner and listen to the Triple Option with RBKD weekdays from 3 to 7 on the Horn and Horn FM.com. That's going to do it for Joe Cook. I am BK Brad Kellner. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and hook them.